to our class. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, two things to note. Uh, one is we have a few extra people that uh, we wouldn't normally have in class because uh, the fellowship area was used for the senior banquet last night, and I think everything didn't get completely set back up again for class purposes. And so that class is meeting here with us and the class that normally meets here. We're glad you're here. Is that the mic? Um, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. We're glad you're here. We appreciate you being a part of the class. In case you're wondering and haven't noticed or observed in the bulletin that Eddie is uh, in a gospel meeting this uh, early part of this week at a place called Fruitvale, which is up in extreme northeast Texas, and we want to remember him and pray for him and the efforts there in that meeting. In just a moment, we're going to be uh, going to our lesson, but I want to ask you first, please, to bow with me and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful this morning that we share this time together to study your word and to think about uh, eternal truths. We're grateful, Father, that we have these privileges and that we can meet freely and openly. We pray that your blessings will be upon the efforts that we make today to know your word and to represent your truth correctly. There's so many blessings for which we need to be thankful. We cannot express fully our deep appreciation for the kindness that you've shown to us throughout all our lives. But we know that, Father, your goodness is great. Your mercy is abundant, and we're thankful for it. We're grateful for being a part of a church family, and we pray that you'll bless our relationship with each other, help us to support and encourage each other, and to work together for the common good of your cause. Bless Eddie and the time he's away from us, and bless the preaching of your word today, not only there, but here, and we pray that uh, we'll benefit from being a part of this worship. Thank you now for the study, and we pray that this study will help to increase our faith. We ask all this through Jesus. personality is uh, I can only uh, say this about uh, the inconvenience of uh, technology sometimes 
if you think that a little popping and so on is bad, you should have been in some of the meetings I was in in India. When you hook up a, a PA system by sticking live wires up in a circuit of some kind, and you have a controller who seems to think that squawk is the normal uh, sound, uh, you can appreciate the little inconveniences we have. Our series, uh, Why We Believe, has five lessons on reasons to believe that the Bible is God's Word. We've already spent time talking about uh, believing in the existence of God. We're going to talk about the deity of Jesus, but in between these two, we're looking at the Bible and we're trying to solidify the belief that it is truly God's Word. The first lesson last week dealt with inspiration, that is, the fact that the Bible is God-breathed. Two different Greek words joined together, a word for God in Greek and a verb to breathe, are brought together to give us the translated English word inspired or inspiration. And even though that term appears only once in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, it is powerfully stated that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Two important words, all means everything, all of whatever Scripture is, and then an understanding that Scripture is a term that is only used to describe sacred writings, not secular writings. True inspiration, we learned last week, is more than a feeling or an emotion caused by reading or seeing something. You might read a novel or see a movie and say, that was an inspiring story. By that we mean it's moving, it's compelling. It, even when we talk about a writer being inspired, writing an inspired novel, we say we're thinking about his genius, human genius. That's not the same as inspiration of the Bible. Inspiration means that God is the source of the words. But more than that, the very words and all of the words in the original language. That is our conviction, or should be. That is our belief that the Bible is all of God's word, and every word is God's word. Now that is in the original writings. We're going to amplify that in a later study. Now, before we get out of this section, next week, the Lord willing, Eddie will be talking about one of the most significant things involved in believing that the Bible is God's Word, and that is fulfilled prophecy. Because it is not possible for humans, unaided by a divine source, to tell people what's going to happen sometimes centuries from the time they spoke the words. Now, there have been a lot of people who've guessed things were going to happen, and guessed right. Most of the time, they guess wrong. 
truthfully, you and I don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. But Bible writers in the Old Testament were telling people about a kingdom that would come during a certain time period, about a person who would come and he would fulfill all of these characteristics and parameters of being the Savior, and all of that happened. Not a prophecy that was intended to be completed has ever failed. The next lesson is going to be a combination of talking about some of the amazing facts you find in the Bible. Facts that were unknown until the Bible said them. And then part of that lesson will also deal with the support of archaeology. I've told classes before that archaeology has always been the friend of the Bible, never its enemy. And archaeological findings on biblical things always are supportive, not negative. And then finally, in that fifth lesson, we're going to be talking about how those original words that we believe came from God have come down to us through translation or those translations dependable? Can we trust them? Today we're going to look at the Bible's claims for itself and the unity of the Bible's theme, two parts. I'm not going to go strictly by the lesson sheet that you have, but I would encourage you please to be sure that you read that lesson sheet carefully and thoughtfully and, uh, and, and give some time to it. Let's talk about the Bible's claims of inspiration. <clears throat> but I feel like it's necessary maybe to note this before we talk about those claims. The claims for the Bible and what is written by Bible writers being inspired, those claims are numerous and they cannot be ignored. And so, because of the claims, you cannot assume a neutral position on this issue. In logic, there is what is called the law of the excluded middle. And simply what that means is something cannot be true and false at the same time. If I had a board here and I drew a line and I said, that is a straight line. It either is a straight line or it isn't. You can't say it's both a straight and not a straight. Now, maybe the way I draw it would look that way. But, but those are the kinds of things. There are, there are so many truths that you must understand. It's either this or that. It can't be both. Now, if the Bible writers were not inspired, and yet they claimed that what they wrote was truly from God, that the very words they were writing were God's words, then we're led to one conclusion. They were liars. They were lying. Because they say this is God's Word, and it wasn't God's Word. And you and I know the danger of believing lies, and we know the fallacy of believing liars. And so we would have to say, we discredit the Bible completely. It's a book of liars. Some have done that. Some have accused Bible writers of simply making up things. And, and exposing their own genius. But I think on the other, and in that regard, you could not depend 
on what they wrote to us to give us guidance of how to please God. If they're liars, why would you trust what they would say? On the other hand, if you accept the claims of Bible writers, then I think it's incumbent upon us to accept all of what the Bible teaches. Again, it's either all wrong, even though maybe you you could say, well, yeah, there's some parts of it that are right, but, but it's wrong. It's all wrong. Or it's all right. Because if that's not the case, if, if what the Bible gives us is not right completely, then you and I are forced into the position that we have to pick apart what the Bible says to determine which parts of it are right and which parts are wrong. Are you skilled enough to do that? And, and if, if you are skilled enough to do it, is the person sitting next to you skilled enough to do it? Would we both agree on the same parts that were right and the same parts that were wrong? I think not. Who would you want to tell you which parts of the Bible you should believe and which you should discount as human writings? You're going to trust somebody with your eternal welfare who will tell you what you ought to believe and what you ought not to believe based upon their understanding? Half-truths are not true. So, are there claims of inspiration? Absolutely. We're going to look at some of these for just a few moments. We're going to look at them together. Look at 2 Peter. I hope you have a Bible in front of you. Incidentally, you should always have your own Bible if you have one. In 2 Peter... Chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21, the Apostle writes, incidentally back in verse 19, he's talked about the prophetic word being confirmed. Then he says this in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, there have been a few people who mistakenly uh, have said, well, you know, Scripture is not of private interpretation. They're saying that to you. They're saying you can't interpret the Scripture. Peter's not talking about that. He's saying that the men who prophesied were moved by the Holy Spirit to prophesy what they did. He's either right or wrong. Can't be both right and wrong. Chapter 3 of the same letter. Verses 15 and 16. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, notice, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Scriptures, inspired writings, writings from God. So Peter, a fellow apostle of Paul's, is saying that what Paul has written to you may have some difficulties of understanding, doesn't say it's impossible to understand. There may be some difficulties, 
But these things are Scripture. They're from God. Go back to 1 Corinthians, if you will. Chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'd like for you to look at verses 12 and 13. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things also we also speak, not in words which men, man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual I don't know how you could say any clearer than Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that what he is giving them is from God. How could you say it any clearer? Remember in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with um, issues in the church at Corinth. This particular one has to do with women in the assembly and speaking out in the assembly or teaching in the assembly. But verse 37 says this, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of God. Places Paul in a very limited situation. He's either lying and they're not the commandment of God or they are the commandment of God. Can't be both. Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. We're going to go back to verse 1. Your lesson sheet, I think, probably gives you less than this, but I want to go back to verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets." Again, I don't see how you can state that any clearer. Now, look at 2 Timothy. and We we saw this a little earlier, but I do want to note it again. 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, this time verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by the breath of God, inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Notice that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished or thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul is telling Timothy, not only is all Scripture inspired or God-breathed, but it's completely sufficient. Now, if it is not the inspired Word of God, it's not sufficient. You need something else. Paul says, this is enough. To furnish you completely. Go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. This is verbal, but but Paul is saying, if and you think about this, if the word of God can be spoken through a man, it can be written by a man, can't it? Why would you why would anyone say, Well, yes, God can speak through a man, but he can't write through a man? Certainly, you can. Uh, this is not on your outline, but go back for a moment to Luke, if you will, the 21st chapter. The 21st chapter of Luke. And this time we're going to look at beginning at verse 12. Jesus is telling His apostles what's going to happen to them. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion of testimony. Therefore, settle it in your mind, in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Divine Help in being able to speak what should be spoken was the promise of Jesus. We don't have the time this morning to go over the multitude of times in the Old Testament that you find the words together, God said. And these are the words that are recorded by people like Moses and others. God said, or in the older version sometimes, thus says the Lord. Or says the Lord in some version. So God is speaking to men and men are recording what God says. In the New Testament, there are multiple occasions when writers will say, sometimes quoting Jesus, sometimes on their own, it is written. It is written. And what they mean by that is that what you should understand has been verified by God because it has been written. It is Scripture. Therefore, it is from God. I think there is no doubt that Bible writers were saying that their message was not theirs, but that it was God's message. And again, placed in the position of saying, were they right or were they wrong? Those who would claim that the Bible is made up of human writings have to accept the conclusion that the writers were therefore trying to deceive people into believing that what they wrote came from God, when in reality it didn't. But the test of that is sometimes this. Examine what they wrote. And you will find among those writings admonitions against deception. No no Bible writer writing by the inspiration of God or supposed inspiration of God, ever tells people you ought to lie because it's a good thing. And you and I then would say, are they encouraging honesty and truthfulness by deception? In other words, they're liars, but they're telling people to tell the truth. 
where they do that. It is not normally true that people do evil that good may come, right? You do evil that evil may come. And so if these men were humanly speaking, humanly writing, and they were evil, liars, why wouldn't they encourage people to be like them, to be liars? Were the Hebrew people who were very meticulous and careful in their examination of writings, were those people gullible? Those who considered what God had said in ages past as being truly from God, were they simply gullible? If so, then Jesus was gullible. Because He spoke on a number of occasions of events, and situations and people that he left the impression were actual people and actual events. Not made up characters. Not mythological stories. But true characters. And often would make lessons from those characters for people listening to him in his own day. Someone is responsible for the Bible. Somebody's mind is behind it. Who composed it? Our choices? Evil men? You know, stop and think about the Bible. No book has done more for mankind than the Bible. You know, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. I think 125 people died for every word that he wrote in that treatise. Mein Kampf uh, didn't start any hospitals for compassion, did it? Look what the Bible has done. Even people who don't completely understand the Bible. How many hospitals have been built? How many children's homes? How many orphans? How many widows have been helped because of the Bible? Evil is not upheld in the Bible. It's not commended. It's condemned. Again, difficult to accept the idea that evil men would encourage doing right if they were evil. Some people will retreat from that a little bit and say, oh no, I don't believe they were evil. I believe they were good men, but they were really just sort of expressing their own feelings about things. And Eddie talked a little bit about this last week. I think the common expression has been they had... What they wrote was their sense, but not the real sentence. In other words, how they viewed it, but it wasn't really fleshed out absolutely true. If inspiration were available, that God could speak through men and the Holy Spirit could guide men in writing, why didn't He do it if that were the case? Why would He let a man simply have an idea and say, I'm going to just sort of uh, fill this out the way I think is a good thing. Why would that happen? If good men were writing from their own thinking, they were not good men. They were deceivers. Again, they claimed their messages from God. The truth is that verse we read in 2 Peter 1.21, men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit was behind the production of all that men wrote in God's Word. Now, I'm going to also think a little bit with you about some of the evidence of the Bible standing apart from all other books. Some of you have heard my rant on this before, and I I don't apologize for it because I really like to rant about this. The word unique is commonly misused. Somebody will say, boy, that is unique. There are only five of those in the world. Unique means singular, one of a kind. doesn't mean multiple or less than a whole bunch. It means one of a kind. And our contention is that the Bible is unique. There is nothing like the Bible. can't be. Because it's the only book that is authored by God. No other book is authored by God. The Book of Mormon certainly isn't. Uh, Seventh-day Adventist doctrines, uh, is, the Koran is not authored by God. The Bible alone is authored by God. As one reads the Bible, he's struck by the fact that it is so diverse, and yet it's so united. How is that possible? Well, your lesson sheet gives you some of the things. It was written by about 40 men, many of whom were unknown to each other, living under different governments in different time periods. Writers came from all walks of life. Moses was brought up in a royal house before he became a shepherd. Nehemiah was simply a servant to the king before he became a governor. Amos tended trees. David first tended sheep. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a tent maker. Peter was a fisherman. Luke was a doctor. Don't seem like the kind of people that you would expect. This is not a a group of graduates from Harvard who get together because they're all literary geniuses. Those are the writers of the Bible. They wrote in three different languages. The Old Testament written basically in Hebrew with just a couple of small sections of Aramaic, much like Hebrew. The New Testament in Greek. And not just Greek, Koine Greek. And Koine Greek is the common Greek of the first century that became a dead language. And so... What we have in the Bible is forever encapsulated in that particular language. One of the problems we have with English and English translation is that words change, right? Words change. And so we keep looking for ways to say the same thing using a different word. That didn't happen in Greek, not in Koine Greek. The language is frozen, fixed, cannot be changed. And so we can't say of that language... Well, it used to mean this, but now it means this. That's English. That's not Greek. Whatever Greek meant when Paul wrote is the same exact thing it means today because that language has never changed. Incidentally, why why did that happen, I wonder? Why didn't God allow the Bible to be written in a language that would be forever updated like English? So that we could say, oh, well, that's English, 16th century. No. God 
somehow understood in his wisdom that if this were written in a language that never changed, men could never say, well, that's what it used to mean, but it doesn't mean that now. Those writers wrote over a period of 1,600 years. And they covered history, ethical teaching, the beginning of all things, how things are going to end. They covered the whole spectrum. Now, what are the chances of all of those things being a part of the writing of the Bible that the Bible would be united at all? I like the analogy that Eddie gave on the second page of the lesson sheet. I hope if you'll turn over there, it's part 2F, right down about the lower third of the page. Look at the illustration. Take 40 contemporary scholars, and and they all have training even in just the one field, and that particular field is world history. They're all scholars of world history. And you put them in a room, and you ask them to write a 20-page paper on a single topic, the cause of World War II, or causes. You're going to get all 20 of them to write the same thing? I, I can guarantee you, you won't. They're going to disagree on a lot of points. And, and, and the, the papers would be recognized for the fact that they disagree. This guy says this was the cause. This guy says this was the cause. I don't know if you've read any much about the Civil War. There are a lot of different opinions about why the Civil War actually happened. And I know why, what school will say sometimes, but there are a lot of different ideas about exactly why did this... Was it really a matter of slavery or was it a matter of economics? There are people who say it was economics, not really slavery. Well, they produced a book that was uniform from beginning to end. They didn't contradict each other. One didn't write in 12, in, in 1000 BC something that Paul would write in 100 AD and say, well, that's not true. They collaborated mentally because the Holy Spirit was working with them. Brother Hugo McCord used this illustration, and I thought it was a good one. If you placed all the ancient Greek writings in one volume, took all the writings of the ancients of Greece, put them all together, you would find no unity except the fact that there was common Greek authorship. You wouldn't wouldn't find that all the Greeks wrote the same things. You take 40 musicians, you take 40 artists, you don't give them any supervision. You place them in different climates, under different governments, different time periods, and you tell them to produce a symphony, what are you going to get? Yet the Bible presents a united message. And I think there's no way to explain how the Bible could be laid out as it is and present the message it does without saying it has a divine origin. I think there are other things, and these are also not on your lesson sheet, but there are other marks of the divine mind. One one of the great things about the Bible is its simplicity 
and its deepness. You know, most human writings that you and I know, we either say, well, that book's very simple and easy to read, or it's very profound. The Bible can't be categorized as simple or profound because it's both. Many stories in the Bible can be taught to children. That's what they're doing this morning in some of our classrooms, teaching children lessons from the Bible. How can they learn those lessons? Because they're very simple. But as adults, you can look at the very same stories and you can find some of the deepest concepts imaginable. You can learn ideas and lessons that are challenging at the best. God's way to save people can be repeated by a child. And yet no Ph.D. living can fully grasp the depth of God's love and wisdom that provides that plan. Someone has noted, and I can't verify this, but I'm going to just give it to you. The average word in the Bible contains five letters or less. The average word. The Bible is not a book that tries to confound people with long, complicated words. Then there is the impartiality of the Bible. You know, when, when biographers pick out somebody's life to write about, one of two things typically happens. And this is particularly true in ancient writing. They either laud their heroes in such a way as to ignore any character faults. They want to lift them up as high as they can lift them. Or, if they are determined not to like that character, they shine a spotlight on all his defects, make him look as flawed as possible. Sometimes it's sort of a mixture. Sometimes it's entirely different. I was in Geneva, Switzerland. I thought, if there's any place I could find a great religious book be in a bookstore in Geneva, Switzerland. I can't. They don't know what religion is most of the time. But I did find a book on Napoleon, not religious. And at that particular time, I was very interested in Napoleon. I'd read several books uh, recently about, before I went on Napoleon. And here was a book on Napoleon. I thought, wow, this is a great book. I bought it. So I could say I had a book from Switzerland. It wasn't anything like the other books. But this particular writer almost made Napoleon seem like a different person than the person I had been reading about. Bible writers did neither. They didn't laud someone exclusively. They didn't down someone exclusively. They just presented the facts. And, and what we would say is a compelling idea is they didn't hide the faults of their heroes. Yeah, Noah saved his family on the ark, but he also got drunk. The Bible writer tells you that. David was a great deliverer of Israel, but he was also an adulterer. The Bible tells us that. Abraham is rightly called the father of the faithful, and yet Abraham is shown to lie about his wife being his sister. Peter, the man that we say did such a magnificent job of saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Confession of Jesus was also the man who denied him. And the inspired writers did not try to hide those. What about the brevity of the Bible? 
the, the original beginning story of creation is about 30, 31 verses long. You, you think a human writer would have been willing to talk about the creation of everything in 31 verses? The baptism of Jesus in one of the accounts of his life is only five verses long. The transfiguration is eight verses long. The death of Jesus, the, to Christians, one of the most significant of all facts of history is a couple of chapters. Look at John 21. You're familiar with these words. As John comes to the close of his account of the Lord's life, John, John 21 and verse 25, last verse, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that were written. That's a hyperbole, of course. But John is simply saying, not we didn't touch all the things Jesus did. We didn't follow Him like a reporter day after day and tell what He ate for breakfast and what He ate for lunch and who He talked to here and who He... We just gave many of the things that you need to have. I, I, I tell you, if human writers were really writing the Bible, you, you couldn't carry a Bible. You'd have to have a truck to carry it because it would have so much in it. It would be 80 volumes. How about the lasting value of the Bible? You know, history books quickly become outdated. chemistry books become museum pieces. Now, some of you went to school a long time ago. You won't admit it, but you did. I know I did. And I'm telling you, the history book I studied in high school wouldn't be worth anything today. Because a lot of history has happened since I got out of school. How about uh, maps of the world? You know... I began to lose track of what countries were what countries when Africa started changing. And it's been relentless since then. How many of you know where Tuvalu is? It's an island, island country in the Indian Ocean. How about Comoros, East African island country? Well, things change. Uh, if you want an interesting thing, look, Google the idea of countries or maps uh, changing of countries. You will be amazed how many countries have become different or changed or, or initiated. Well, the truths that were taught in the first century are the same truths we're teaching today. Why? Because they're not outdated. The same basic needs of man have always been his needs. The same desire of God for man to submit to him remains God's desire. You and I don't have to say, well, man, I wish my Bible were updated so we'd have something better to talk about. We have what we need to talk about now because it is complete. 
How about one final thing, and that is the indestructibility of the Scriptures. You know, a lot of books have not even survived the century in which they were written. In 303 A.D., Emperor Diocletian ordered all copies of the Scripture destroyed. And he thought that he had succeeded in that, and he had a special medal created and engraved with these words. The Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods restored. It wasn't destroyed. Twenty years later, Emperor Constantine was putting Bibles in churches. The skeptic Voltaire predicted before his death in 1778 that his attacks on the Bible would make Christianity extinct within a hundred years. He wrote this sarcastically. It took twelve men to start Christianity. One will destroy it. You might know the fact that the British Bible Society later printed Bibles on the very same press that Voltaire used to print his literature. The literature, he said, would destroy Christianity That printing press became a vehicle to communicate God's Word to thousands of people. Yes, I think we can trust our Bible, not just by putting blind, uh, unfounded faith in it, but because of the evidence that's there. These These things are things that we have to say, they have to mean something. If this is real evidence, we have to consider. When you go into a court case, evidence is what determines whether the verdict is guilty or not guilty. That is true of the Bible. And the evidence says, this is God's Word. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate you coming and being a part of the class.